So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection Now with your hosts, Jean Victoria Norlock and Rick O'Shields, bringing your inner life to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Everyday Connection Now. I am, yet again, or still, or I'm Rico Shields, and the way, Canada, mountains, over there, Jean, Victoria Norlock. How are you, Jean? I'm <laughs> good. You, would you forget my name? No, <laughs> no. This person I, I've been talking to for five years. <laughs> I was, you know, trying to work out the in front of me, behind me, to the left, to the right. Oh, she's over there, Canada. She's I'm there. In Canada. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm over here in Canada, still swimming in a state of gratitude. Because it really is, I mean, fast, too, these days. Works. Super, oh, super. my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Ridiculous how quick. Like, we've had since that, and oh, goodness, what's what was her name, Rick? I'm so embarrassed. I can't remember her name, but the girl that came on and spoke about gratitude. How embarrassing is that? How embarrassing is that? Ah, how many shows? How many shows do we do a week? Too many this week, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been I've been doing her gratitude practice, although I haven't been writing it down. I have been doing it frequently throughout the day, just taking two minutes to just look around and go. My life is freaking awesome. And when I see something that particularly stands out, I take a minute and go, this is so awesome. This is part of my life. And since I started doing it every day religiously, so much has changed in just even like four days. It's it's crazy. I don't even know. And you've I don't got, know how to You're like it. a family in on it because <laughs> y'all, were, y'all were in the car the other day driving home going, wow, this is, wow, we live here. This is awesome, this, you know, and I do that, Yeah. you know, I, it's funny because I live here. You would think I would notice that I live here every day, but sometimes it takes something extra, like taking a picture of the house or something. Why is that? I don't know, but um, I'm telling you, it works. Things flow a lot better, and it's not always, I mean, we did talk about, we did talk about gratitude and, and how it can help you to finally get over that abundance hump, but for me, it's, I mean, it's not just about abundance of money. It's about abundance of, of good interactions with people that you would normally maybe not have a positive interaction with. Um, like, it's almost like the people that I'm dealing with on a personal level have shifted. And I know it's not them. I know it's me who's shifted, but that's what it, it feels like. It sure feels that way. You know, so. Yeah, and it's it's 
just I don't even know how to describe it. It's it's just been fascinating to watch the changes. And they've been rapid. Super rapid. Um yeah. you know, I mean some some really incredible things have come up, some really incredible changes within our family structure have come up, all for the positive. And um it's just it's just awesome. Very, very cool. And it stuff. just happened. Just happened. Yeah. Nobody had to work for it or, you know, fight for it or struggle for it. It just poof. Pretty much yeah. just poof. Here it is. Yeah, it, it yeah. it's uh, it's pretty amazing that and um uh you know that's that's where I went back to with this little issue with the big toe over here with the you know Ilya got on me about that. So what about some, some gratitude yeah. for your foot, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay. Right. And, of course, so then I turned that right back around on you today after you said my foot hurts. I was like, what? I was like, well, you know, and that's, that's how I'll treat it tonight. I mean, I, I could – I sit and take lots of pills and, you try know, back rub it with lots of ointments and try and, you know, massage it back into submission. Or I could just, like – put it up and let it rest and just say thank you for getting you know helping me get so much done today i'm sorry i bruised you in the process and i will take it easy for the rest of the night and first for a good part of tomorrow yeah and um but you know it it did It'll allow quit. me to do everything i needed to do right my body did allow me to, do, to get you, everything you i needed to do today you, done you asked it to, to do a bit quite a bit more today than normal <clears throat> yes i did yeah Yes. Today today was a big clean day. So, you know, that's like that's when you do all the towels, the sheets, the uh, Yeah. get into everything and, and get her done. Um so yeah. Dust but, hunting and things like that. Absolutely. But and with three dogs, you can imagine. <laughs> There's a lot of dust hunting. I have one. But, that's enough for me to imagine, really. I started talking about the dog hair collecting, and if I didn't do it regular, because you, you know, those things that happen every two weeks, we were talking about big clean day. Yeah. I said, yeah, if I don't, yeah. then there's more hair on the floor than on the dog. And I looked at the floor, and I was like, oh, oh no, there was a rather large little collection of hair that was rolling about. And I said, ah, <clears throat> no hair weeds, tumble hairs, tumble. Oh. <clears throat> It happens, but that's, you know, what they, it's part and parcel of living the lifestyle that we live. Our dogs have um, a ton of freedom in that we have these flappy screen light things on our doors in the summer, and the dogs have their freedom to go in and out of the house as they wish. So, and we're surrounded by bush, so you can well imagine occasionally the dogs get a little bit muddy when they're out kicking around the bush and checking things out. And we, you know, I, I don't always catch them in time when they're coming in no, with the towel. Too. So it, it is hard to do. So, but it's a small price to pay, I think, for the fact that we have super happy dogs. Yeah. Super happy, friendly, well-adjusted animals who are, well, are very well-behaved and, and very affectionate. So it's, to me, it's a little extra work, small price to pay. And if there's a little extra dirt on my floor, too bad. Suck it up. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> no, I feel exactly the same way. That's like when somebody says, you know, you realize you have hair on your shirt. I'm like, yes, I have a dog. I don't like start picking at my shirt and go, oh, what? Someone's going to see it? I just, yeah, I have a dog. 
Dog has hair. Sorry. <clears throat> I try to wear black and tan a lot. That's her colors. You know, that way she just blends in. Nobody, nobody says. <laughs> but, uh, nobody notices. Uh, nobody much notices. They know I don't care, so they just quit pointing it out to me, I guess. Absolutely. It kind of works that way. It kind of works that way. Because why would they? Right. Well, we have um, returning guests tonight. I always love it when we have the returning guests. It's like friends come back to visit. No? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I love it when friends come give, to visit, and I don't have to clean before they get here. <laughs> All right. That's what I was fishing for. That's teamwork, ladies and gentlemen, or synchronicity or something. But, uh, yeah, we may take a little peek behind the cosmic veil tonight again with our dear friend Thomas P. Fusco. Thomas, how are you? Oh, very good, Rick. How about you? Just fantastic. Well, a little weird around the edges, but mostly fantastic. <laughs> well, thanks for having me You're back on. So glad you could join us. It's our pleasure. Our pleasure. So, Thomas, it's been a while, and I've already asked you the other question, so I don't know. What do you say? I guess... Uh, how are you doing, and what on earth are you up to now? Well, uh, I'm still trying to uh, uh, get the message out on my work and the significance of it, and uh, uh, I've done quite well. Um, you know, I've been on lots and lots of interviews. Um, I've been booked into a couple of events. I'm going to be uh, speaking uh, and presenting in a couple weeks at the Paradigm Symposium up in St. Paul, Minnesota, and that's October 17th through the 20th. And uh, I'm scheduled to uh, next year in the fall to be speaking and presenting at the Spirits, Shadows, and Secrets International Symposium. Uh, so, well, that uh, sounds fun. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, I'm very excited about it and very honored. And, uh, you know, there's been some experimental work being uh, going on that's related to my work and some other kinds of findings that are pretty exciting. So, uh, you know, when you're trying to change a mainstream paradigm, uh, it's always an uphill battle. There is a little uh, bit of fighting the current there, so to speak. Well, yeah, especially when you're bringing something to the table that's a little bit more than just another opinion or another notion or another hypothesis. Uh, and so when you've got something very solid, then people begin to take it seriously. And those who have something to lose by it begin to take it very seriously as a threat uh, to what they believe in. And no. so you run into those kinds of things. But there are so many open-minded people out there that are very receptive that it, uh, you know, that it more than compensates for the dark side of it, so to speak. So the occasional 
you know, hey, don't be rocking the boat type reaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, and, you know, as you know, my work uh, involves a new conceptual theory of everything uh, that not only incorporates the findings uh, of modern physics, but also addresses some of the long-standing anomalies and difficulties with physics, as well as areas of, you know, of study like paranormal and parapsychological phenomena. And there's some very strong beliefs on, in all those areas. Um, my work also touches on religious subjects. Of course, we know there's quite a few strong feelings there. So when you're, yeah, when you're presenting something that's coherent and actually makes sense, uh, that's when you start ruffling feathers. Uh, So much of that, those, how would I say it? Particularly when we get into things like the paranormal, uh, there are so many different people out there with so many different opinions uh, that they pretty much kind of accept that everybody has an opinion uh, because everybody's coming from the same uh, lack of foundation, so to speak. So it's very acceptable. Uh, Well, you look at it this way and I look at it this way and that person looks at it this way and everything's okay because nobody really knows what's going on anyway. Uh, (laughs) So they're kind of all equals in that cauldron. But when somebody comes along and says, "Uh uh-uh, this is what's happening and that's what's happening and this is what's happening and this is how it's happening and this is why it's happening. And furthermore, I can talk about predictive experiments that if this experiment was conducted, you would find this result. If this was conducted, you would find this result. And then people conduct the experiments and say, oh my goodness, this is exactly what we found. That's pretty big. And so then, you know, lines get drawn where some people are going to cheer you, some people are just going to shrug their shoulders and say, gee, that's interesting. And some are not going to be very happy about it. Can you, can you give us an example? Well, of, yeah. Of, of uh, something uh, that might example, shake people up? Well, yeah. I, I always try to do that. Um <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I mean, from a religious point of view, for example, uh, uh, let's take uh, Judeo-Christianity. One of my premises is that there has to be opposites uh, in order for a physical universe to even exist. So if we we're going to look at that from a religious perspective, uh, we would... Uh, uh, <laughs> So we need the devil is what you're saying. That's got to really piss him off. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, because <laughs> if somebody, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and that really gets some fiery reactions in some circles. So I bet speak. it does. Uh, Absolutely. Because Absolutely. if we stop and think about it, uh, you know, let's say that we do have a creator, uh and let's say that creator is of the nature and characteristic that would be 
generally understood from Judeo-Christianity, from the Bible, from those uh, particular writings. Um, and if we look at the nature of that creator, uh, based on those writings, we've got a being, an entity, that is pure, that is absolute, that there is no change right. or variation in him, uh, that he is eternal, that there is no beginning and there's no end, and there is no corruption in him, timeless, spaceless, so on and so forth. Virtually all characteristics that are exact opposite of the physical universe where we live. Right. Now, if you had a being like this, and this being decided, and of course we're talking in a very human way. Um, I don't even know whether our physical lips even have the integrity to pronounce exactly what such a being is or would be. But in our own mortal, limited ways, uh, you know, we try to speak about it the best we can. So given that, we have this being, uh, God, that is pure, uh, that's eternal, all these other characteristics, who decides one day uh, he wants to create a universe. And that universe is the exact opposite of him. It is temporal. It is timed. It has a beginning and an end. It is spatial. It has dimensions, which are measurements of differences. You know, spatial dimensions are the differences between here and there, to say it in a very elementary way. And time is a measurement of the difference between then and now, uh, past right. and present. And if we want to go to the future, we could say then, now, and when. Um, so where does he create this? First of all, he can't create it within himself. Because if we're going to go by the uh, biblical definition, there's no impurity in him. It says that corruption can have no part in incorruption. It also says in another place that flesh and blood cannot enter into the kingdom, enter into the domain of God. So basically what it says is that anything corruptible comes in contact to him with him immediately becomes dissolved, turned into nothingness, burned away. So in order for him to make such a realm that we have here, he got two challenges. First of all, there has to be a realm outside of himself. He would have to place it in a realm that was separate from himself. Uh, and it's like St. Paul said, while we are in these bodies, we are exiled from God. And so that's the kind of an idea that we would need. There would have to be a realm outside of himself. But the second thing that he would have to come up with is an expression of differences. And again, he in himself has no differences. So where is he going to get the differentiation from which physical dimensions must be made from? And of course, again, if we turn to the Bible, we find that he has 
an adversary, the nature of whom is the exact opposite of his. And if these two adversaries come into contact with one another, where they have conflict, we have a zone, what I call a zone of conflict, that would begin to generate the differences that will eventually emerge as the physical universe. That those, that that primal conflict creates pre-dimensional and pre-physical waves. And as the intensity or as the conflict intensifies, these waves become increasingly densified and they reach a point where they actually descend to the speed of light. And as soon as these waves reach light speed, they begin to emerge and unfold and materialize as our physical universe. And this is the first time there's ever been any kind of a scientific interpretation of this kind of traditional religious principle. Now, the protest from this comes from some fundamental Christians that say, well, that, that's not true. That can't possibly be true because in the book of Genesis it says that God created the heavens and earth and saw that it was good. And they misinterpreted as good as in no evil. So the world was created good and pure, you know, and this is the fundamentalist belief. <clears throat> but it's based on the idea of a once glorified angel Lucifer that fell from grace, and when he fell from grace and man sinned, that's when the world had evil that entered into it. Well, um, because he, I mean... It's so hard to accept. I mean, and and I love where you're going with this. Like you have no idea. We, I wrote about this. Um, and I, I so love where you're going with this. About this, going down this vein. I but now that we love are, hey, where you're you know. going with this. Um, but it, what I find fascinating that it, it's absolutely terrifying for people to believe that a god could create something that does have. Or that any entity or being could create something that has a perfect balance between what we perceive to be good and what we perceive to be evil. And, and consider that to be a good thing. Because most people assume that as a creator you would want to create something that's pure. But as you so beautifully explained, it just simply can't be. You can't take this pure essence and manifest it into physical as we know physical unless you incorporate contrast it's simply not possible yes it, it, it is and this is one of the uh, this is a real example not the make-believe examples of people trying to uh, bring science to the Bible and that type of thing. This is a very real example of it, that uh, without differences, we cannot have a physical universe. And if one believes in God as a creator, God could have not created what was physical and temporal, 
without having differences. <clears throat> and since there are no differences in himself, he has to have an adversarial force from which to generate the raw substance from which the universe is made, or what the Bible calls formless matter. And <clears throat> one of the misinterpretations of this, when they say, well, it says in Genesis that God, you know, uh, created the heavens and earth and saw that it was good, so how could there be evil in it? It's a gross misinterpretation. Because we look at any authoritative reference, like uh, Young's literal translation or Strong's uh, uh, concordance, these kinds of things, in all the scholars agree that that word good, enesis, is the Hebrew word tob, T-O-B. And what it actually means is exemplary, job well done, created as best as it possibly could have been. So the good means that he did a good job. It doesn't mean that he made all good and no evil. Um, and I can hear the fundamentalists screaming right now, uh, you know, uh, praying that we were back in, you know, 17th century, uh, 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 you know, uh, New England. <laughs> yeah, or the Dark Ages, or... Uh... Yeah, where they could literally burn me at the stake. The reality of this is that it makes no, no, it makes no sense any other way. If we're going to say that what our sciences do is actually to understand the way that God's creation is put together, then ultimately what we're discovering is God's order. And when we bring that understanding to the scriptures, we see all new, deeper layers of meaning in it that were not apparent on the surface. Things that I believe that the ancients knew uh, in their own rudimentary way, but was somehow lost. Um, if we take a look at some references in the Old Testament, you, you know, where God speaks through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, it is me, it is I, God, me from eternity. I'm the one who has done everything. I make the light and create the darkness. I make weal and woe. I make life and death. Because I do it all. Um, and then when you get in the New Testament, uh, you get things like, uh, well, there's one that I like to talk about where uh, the uh, Jesus and the disciples, they came upon this man who was born blind. And they asked him from the ancient belief that any kind of an affliction like this was a result of some sin that was committed by that person or their parents or the parents before. And they said, well, why was this, what sin did he or his parents do that would cause this man to be born this way and live like that? And you can imagine in ancient times what kind of a hardship it would have been to be blind. I mean, there was no public assistance like that, what we have today. Uh, you literally were 
You had to beg your entire life. You suffered. Uh, and Jesus says, he says, not for any sin that he committed or his parents, but that the glory of God might be made manifest through him at this moment. And so what happened is this, God caused this man to be born in such a miserable condition and suffer all of his life so that he could be a five-minute talking point for Jesus. And when you stop and think about that, you start realizing that this common desire to see God as the warm, fuzzy teddy bear in the sky just isn't real. It's, it's imagined it was created. It's not even expressed in the Bible that way. Well, and it is, to me, the fundamental challenge when people want to pick up something that's 2,000 years old and try to make sense of it. You, you, you're not even saying the same words. You, can't, you, you, you certainly can't have an understanding of what these people were getting at. And, and what if they're writing stories down that are trying to get at a technology, as you're saying, that was lost, or a knowledge, a knowing that was lost? It, it, now you've got different words, and you're telling the story around the circle in the room. So, wow. Um, but it, I can only imagine, too, that from the other angle, the scientists, when you try to bring physics into anything that starts with para, <laughs> except maybe the Paralympics, um, that they get really perturbed. My advantage is that my theory of uh, uh, what I call super geometry or super geometrics comes in because it actually can answer some questions that current physical models cannot. And it actually makes predictions, not like the psychic predictions, but scientific predictions, that if you conducted such and such an experiment, this theoretical model would predict that you would get a certain kind of result. And that my theory does that, which makes it a true scientific theory and goes beyond the philosophy and metaphysics and all the things that have been done up until my book, Behind a Cosmic Veil, was published. We have something very different to work on now than ever existed before. So, And that's for just for our listeners that nap through science class, that's... That's really the where the scientists draw the line, is that this is pure science because I can take my theory, make a prediction, and then do an experiment and show that it's true repeatedly, right? Right. And so you, you have right. things that will do that, and that probably makes them either angry or nervous or both. Well, what I say is that for the first time, rather than to try to call scientists into these alternate arenas, that I can go into science's arena uh, in their own court, in their home, with their home advantage, uh, and by their own house rules, and I can play in that, I can go box in that ring and give them a black eye. And that's something very different. That's not really been done before. Um, so... Uh, for example, 
one of the predictions that this theory makes, and I know this gets a little bit into the scientific end of it, but one of the, the predictions this theory makes is that there is no such thing as what physicists call supersymmetry, which is the idea that in order to, ex to explain certain irregularities in subatomic particles, that they have theorized that all particles have a heavier supersymmetric twin that modifies the behavior of the particle that we can observe. And what I have always claimed was that that influence is occurring as a result of what I call a superphysical or supergeometric effect which lies above physical reality, it's extra-dimensional. And the, the standard mainstream physics for 50 years has placed their bets on this supersymmetry, which is something that, uh, um, you know, I've always been against. So late last year, we finally got some real good uh, findings out of the Large Hadron Collider over there in, in, at CERN uh, uh, in Switzerland. <clears throat> and based on those findings, they've now pretty much concluded that there is no such thing as supersymmetry. Right. So all of the standard models and all the physicists had predicted this supersymmetrical mm -hmm. model. And my theory predicts that it doesn't exist. And the experimental findings are confirming my prediction as opposed to the mainstream physics prediction. Um, well, and it's really uh, a guess. The mainstream physicists don't. It, it's couched in very nice terms, like in, in order to explain certain irregularities that there must be. Well, isn't that sort of like saying our our theory doesn't quite work out, so we're going to throw in a fudge factor. We're going to make something up. <laughs> well, absolutely. And in physics, when they do that, it is the result of what I call a materialistic paradigm. That in physics, everything is physical. Reality. Let's say reality represents, or, or we define this, that all that, all that there is. Let's define reality that way. Uh, from a physics point of view, physicists, the mainstream philosophy, is that reality is the physical universe, and that the physical universe is reality. And they're synonymous, and they're, they're all inclusive. There's nothing outside of the physical. So what the problem we have today in physics is, uh, with the advancements of our uh, powers of observation through our technology and, and instrumentation, that we have literally come up with more physical effects that we have observed than we have physical causes to account for them. We've literally run out of material in the universe to explain everything that we see. So when we run into those things, uh, physics tends to make things up and it sounds funny but that's what they do so for example uh so for some years now 
we have come to the understanding that there's close to 90% more gravitational effect observable in the universe than there is physical mass to account for it. Remember, according to the conventional model of physics, mass generates gravity. Um, right. So when you have all this gravity and there's no adjacent local mass, what we would call local, uh, to the effect, they made up something called dark matter. Right. Gee, it's a magical substance. We don't know what it is. We still have no idea what it could possibly be. We can't we see it. We don't even have any theoretical models to tell us what it would be. Uh, we can't observe it, can't see it. Yet it comprises close to 90% of the matter in the universe. Right. And yet we have no wavelength, no type of measurement that can actually interfere with it so that we can detect it. Yeah, it might as well be pixie dust. Here's my my problem with that. that. The reason is because God's up there and he's pissed or something. Well, it's just it. I, I I have to get a chuckle from that because we got, there we go. A bunch of scientists who always have to prove their theories in order for their theories to be valid, saying that God can't be proven because because there's nothing tangible there to prove that God can exist. However, they will tell you the dark matter exists, even though they don't have any tangible evidence of it. That, to me, is absolutely fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but understand, if someone taught you that reality existed inside of a box, however that box could be defined or described, and that was drilled into your head, then your solution to a mysterious observation you would have to contrive something that would be contained in the box. And this is why they conduct themselves the way they do. And if you consider reality as being confined in the box that is entitled physical or material, and that all of reality must be something physical or material, if you approach it with that paradigm, then it's unquestionable that there must exist something like dark matter. You see what I mean? If it's got to be everyday concrete stuff, then there has to be, uh, oh, flying horses and unicorns. Really, it's no different. (laughs) Yeah, if that's the only thing that would explain... Yeah, if that's the only thing that would explain the effect that we're observing. Yeah, and and that uh, we are confined to naming only that which is physical. Then we would have to say it's flying, you know, horses or whatever. Um, And that's how physics works. Now, granted, physics has accomplished much with that outlook, with that perspective. But the problem is, as I've said, is that we have run out of material to explain everything that we observe. And I'm just talking about straight physics. I'm not talking about things like paranormal phenomena yet. I'm not even there yet. 
I'm talking about what we have in the in the big old basket that we call legitimate mainstream in physics. Um, but addictive experiments. Uh, most people in the general public are not aware of how profound that is and what it really means. And to just give you a couple examples, uh, an amateur physicist who was unable to get hired by anyone for anything that a family friend pulled a couple strings and got this poor, incompetent, dysfunctional man a job in a patent office in Germany in 1905, who he created the most famous mathematical equation in humankind, E equals mc squared. We're talking about Albert Einstein. And when he published his theory of relativity, one of the things that he predicted was that light coming from stars to our Earth, where we could observe it, would be diffracted or, or deflected bent if we observed that starlight in the presence of a solar eclipse. That the stars surrounding the solar disk would show a, uh, their light would show a variation of 1.75 degrees when compared to the exact same section of sky, a photograph of that section of sky without the solar disk there. And this was a crazy idea that space was actually a substance, that space <laughs> was actually a field, and not an empty void like Newton had told us a couple hundred years before. Um, this was crazy. And it took 19 years before the right photographic team with the right telescopes being in the right place on Earth to observe this eclipse clearly and take photographs of it and then compare the photography to the same segment of the sky without the solar disk there, lo and behold, his prediction came true. And he changed the world. He changed everything. From that moment, not when he published, not when this kind of weird idea, this curiosity was discussed among scientific circles, but when the experiment was done and the prediction was, was brought forth, that changed everything. Every theoretical physicist dreams of having a prediction of his theory proved. Back in the 60s, um, Peter Higgs, one of the several physicists at the time that were theorizing there must be a particle that the field of which imparts mass to other particles and that this was one of the ways that the crazy light speed soup of the early universe began to slow down enough to to form structures like stars and galaxies, this type of thing. He predicted this hypothetical particle that came to be known as the Higgs boson. And then they discovered a particle, 
And that's the whole discussion there, because that still isn't quite what they thought it was supposed to be. Uh, but it is close enough to say, hey, we got a hit. And in July of last year, July 4th, CERN made this official announcement. Peter Higgs, old man now, sitting in the, you know, at the meeting, and he openly wept when they announced it. So when we have these predictive theories that come true from the experiments, these are earth-shattering things. These are world-changing things. So when I tell people that I've got a theory that actually made experimental predictions, some of which have come true, um, people don't get it. They say, oh, well, that's interesting. Well, next week we're going to have Ben Hansen on. and uh, Right. You know. Yeah, but boy, because <laughs> right over their head. Because really, up until the year, the year of the the um, proof of Einstein's prediction of this deflection of starlight, uh, everybody thought he was nuts. Oh, it had almost been decided in the halls of science that okay, well, that was fun and it's it's a cool little equation, but you know, let's get on with the real work and. Well, for the- yeah. Yes. Yeah. And 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 then there were, you know, fortunately he wasn't alone. There were others that heard him and said, "Oh yeah, I, I think you're right." E- enough to go to the ends of the earth and take pictures, you know. And uh, uh, you know, because we think about eclipses now, and if it's cloudy here, we just all watch it on TV. But uh, back then that wasn't the case. If it was cloudy and you had traveled with you know, 75-man expedition to Papua New Guinea to film it. Yeah, and it's cloudy. You might have to wait another four years before you could try again. Yeah, and there were several attempts that were made. And, uh, yes, it was undertaken by a small handful of people who understood the work and said, we believe in you. I'm going to put in this work to do what is necessary to prove it or disprove it. Um, Because some people, again, lay people are not aware most of the time, Einstein never did any of this work himself. Einstein never touched a test tube outside of school. He didn't conduct a single physical experiment. Um, Everybody else did the experiments for him. And so, yeah, and and he changed the world. The idea that matter and energy are two forms of the same thing, that they're equivalent, is a remarkable conclusion. Um, And what's interesting, when Einstein was finally given the Nobel Prize, he was given the prize for his model of the atom. And most people don't realize Einstein was the first one to describe accurately a model of an atom. <clears throat> Guy was a giant. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, unimaginable what a monster this cat was in his head. Um, oh, yeah. I wouldn't want to go in there. I imagine it's dark and scary. I uh, would? Are you kidding me? I'd love it. An hour inside inside Einstein's head would be, like, the best life experience in the world. Can you imagine? 
the stuff that you could discover with just an hour in his brain? Yeah, when you really get into his his writings, the cat was beautiful. I mean, from a scientific... Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Like myself, his... His writing is like masterpieces of art. Beautiful, simple, pure. Just, you know, <clears throat> I have certain jealousies in my life. And one of the jealousies is I'm jealous of Einstein's writing. I wish I could write like Einstein did. Really? This this idea, really, of, of his, of, that he was so enamored of, of if you couldn't explain something simply you just really didn't understand it well enough that that and 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 people think science sometimes science seems like it's something that gets larger and more complex all the time and the, the real advancements have all been simplifications you're really. absolutely right rick uh-huh. you build up a lot of com- complex static and then somebody looks right through it and says oh it's like this okay i get it and yeah, we go. Yeah, it's like Tesla. You know, when everybody else was saying, "Hey, to do electric, to make electrical devices work, to make electricity do work, you have to push electrons through devices, and you have to keep pumping those electrons through those devices." You know, Tesla just looked at it for the way it was and said, "Well, yeah, you got to pass an electron through a device." but why can't it be the same electron? Why can't you just pass it through the device back and forth and alternate its current? Whoa, dude. You know, and he saw clearly through something that the greatest minds around him couldn't see, and, and he saw it purely. It just, it's mind-blowing. And like Einstein was completely crucified for his theories. Well, you know, Einstein was pretty much a, a, until this was, this experiment was conducted, he was more of a curiosity. Well, that's an interesting paper. That has some merits. I see what you're talking about there. And, uh, you know, and pretty much that was it. He still couldn't get a job in any of the universities on the continent. Nobody wanted to hire him. Yeah, His he was. Father actually wrote. He was taken seriously. He's never taken he seriously. He hired my son. Um, so it, it, it's a, uh, it, it's what a lot of people aren't aware of is the um, consequences of these predictive experiments. Um, now, one of the aspects of my work comes with comes in with paranormal phenomena. And that's something where my theory has really uh, uh, made some big advances in it um, because it presents a model of paranormal mechanics, what I call it, that actually explains all the what I call the primary and secondary paranormal effects that are observed at these active sites. And it explains them in a coherent and consistent way. And that are Can you give us an example of that? Well, I tell you what, um, that's actually, I think, a big slice there. And we're right about the halfway point. Um, 
why don't we do a, a break and then come back and really, really dive full force down into that because uh, a coherent yeah, and like, predictive like model of, of paranormal experiences makes them not paranormal. It makes them normal. And that's huge. <laughs> that's right up my alley. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, gosh, now this one's way out there. I don't know what music played for that. You know, uh, shadows of light and darkness, maybe. But we did we did just play last night. Uh, oh, uh, who cares? Play her again. We'll play her again. She's it's a different song. It's a different song. So, uh, it's a different now. Yeah, yeah. So some uh, Jolene with Shadows of Light and Darkness or Dark and Lightness. Light and Darkness, I think. I, it's a song. I'll look up the title. I'll have to, to push the buttons. And, uh, and we'll be right back. So stay with us, folks.
All right. Welcome back, everybody. That was our friend Jolene, and, and that's spelled J-O-E-L-E-E-N, who you will find at her website, JoleneWorld.com. And I don't know if she's still doing the uh, UNICEF deal or not, but that Shadows of Light and Darkness was the song that she was using in her UNICEF campaign. Uh, so that's even all the more reason to drop by her website and check it out at JoleneWorld.com. Then you can find out and send me an email. Let me know. I'll get it right on the next show maybe <laughs> sort of <laughs> well it's one of those it's one of those songs we don't get to play often just because it's not every day that you have a guest come on and say yeah we need both um although i have to admit i am excited to announce that more recently especially in our last year of guests there has been a large percentage of guests who have come on from their different places of understanding, be it religion, spirituality, science, have all come on and said, yeah, we need both. So that's just exciting to me that people are finally catching on to that concept and it's not um, it, it's not something that we're going to get crucified for anymore, which is awesome. So you know, I, I love it when a guest come on, comes on to talk about it because balance people, oh my goodness. Goodness, goodness, balance. Can't, can't, can't have the rainbow without the thunderstorm or without the rain shower. The day without Let's the not night. Forget that. You know, it's always Very darkest important. before the dawn. And I thought it was always darkest <laughs> right before it goes pitch black, but that that's just me. <laughs> <clears throat> no. <laughs> okay, so as All much right. fun as this is, and from the from the angle of spirituality and religion, I'd love to get him back on just to do a whole show on that because we could talk about there being no bunnies and rainbows in some people's worlds um, back 2,000 years ago when a certain supposedly blonde, blue-eyed man was walking the earth. But I am super, super interested in how this affects our understanding of paranormal because that is not something that I've had the opportunity to talk to people a lot. And we haven't had a lot of paranormal experts on the show. So how and, are we making paranormal normal? That's right. That's exciting. Because that's that how big it is to have a predictive model. I just want to say that one more time. So everybody knows. So poor Thomas knows that there's at least one set of radio hosts that gets it. Uh, if you don't know, look up predictive model because that's that's really that's where science draws the line between paranormal and normal. And uh, you know because they'll tell you, well, there's lots of unusual things, but they're they're still normal. Well, okay, this this will make these quote unquote paranormal experiences fall now into that category of they're just unusual, exotic, perhaps even awesome. So where are some areas in paranormal experience that uh, uh, that you have predictive models about? Did say under these conditions this happens? Or, or how, how, how does that work? Well, let me start by uh, uh, kind of giving a little bit of a monologue <clears throat> because it takes some foundational explanations to get to that point to where we can begin talking about that, uh, uh, those paranormal mechanics intelligently. If it was easy, we would have figured it out a long time ago. Uh, 
So I'm going to describe some things, and I really want uh, you know you, uh, Gene and Rick, to interject any time that you want. Interrupt me to ask a question, please. Um, but I need to we'll do. go on a little bit of a spiel here first. Um, no problem. We've been talking a little bit about unification and how the uh, in science uh, some of the greatest theoretical advancements that we've made have come from this effort to unify. Uh, you know, one of the greatest unifications that we had was the, from the work of uh, Maxwell and uh, Faraday in the 19th century that they were able to unify electricity with magnetism and realize they were two forms of the same force called that we call today electromagnetism and and so on and so forth the ultimate goal is to unify everything into a single simple con, con, uh, concept um, and so this is where my work uh, comes in that I have come up with such of a uh, such a unified model and so I'll talk about this a little bit and uh, like I said please interrupt me if you have a question um, the ultimate of, the idea of the ultimate unified model is it would predict everything it would hold within it the ability to predict yeah. any phenomena we see touch taste smell find here in this physical place yes yes uh, and so for me, one of the challenges was to come up with a paradigm, a concept, a way of looking at things that everything that we can observe could be to some, on some level interpreted through this viewpoint, through this perspective. And ultimately what I came upon was the idea of information. And what I mean by this is, is in a physics term, not necessarily in the colloquial way that we use it, although it's very similar. Uh, well, we, we were taught in school the conservation laws, that matter and energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Uh, for some time now, modern physics has an extension to those laws that says that the information from which matter and energy is assembled can itself neither be created nor destroyed. So we have a conservation law of information today as well. It's called quantum unitarity. Um, but what I came to understand was that the idea of information can serve as the fundamental paradigm of the universe, which is different than what mainstream physics views it. In other words, if we had a pyramid and all the blocks of the pyramid were all aspects of reality, physical reality. The capstone would comprise information from which everything is okay. derived. And so this leads us to uh, my particular one-sentence definition of the physical universe. And people consider that question almost to be like a joke that would be on an exam, like a trick question. Um, the universe is an expression of materialized and materializing information. 
And when we think about any aspect of reality, we find that we can understand it in reference to this single paradigm, that it relates to every aspect of physical reality. And so there's something very important with that because what that does is begins to break down the traditional boundaries between certain uh, um, aspects or certain different types of disciplines. So, for example, it applies very well in mainstream physics. But if we take a look at Judeo-Christianity, it also matches that perfectly. That God had a body of information that the in the New Testament is called the Logos. That is a Greek philosophical term. That means mind, order, structure, matrix, pattern, blueprint, thought. Uh, an idea. No exact, yeah, it has no exact... I have an idea. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, so that's that's expressed in, in that form, too. And the Old Testament was called the wisdom of God. And the idea was God created this pre-physical substance and then spoke the word, and that information materialized in the physical reality. Now, if we go to paranormal phenomena and take a look at that, what do we see? When we, um, when we hear disembodied voices or pick up EVPs or, uh, um, you know, see an apparition. What we are seeing is a materialization of information. So this is really a concept that for the first time begins to unify all of these things. Um, if we take a look at parapsychology, now, we know that thoughts in the brain, when we look at the brain physically, thoughts are represented by unique electrochemical patterns. And we're actually able to measure and observe these. Absolutely. And so, let's say in parapsychology, let's say if we talk about remote viewing. Now, we're talking about information that pertains to a remote target, something that is not local to us, or what we would call non-local in physics. And these experiments have been done in Faraday cages and, and, and those kinds of things to demonstrate that the recipient is not receiving this information physically. It is not coming to the recipient over any type of a physical medium. There is no radio wave, there is no light beam that's carrying it from, let's say, from one coast to another. There's nothing physically conducting locally that information to the recipient, to the viewer. <clears throat> now, the viewer views this information. The information comes into the viewer's mind, in the brain. And once it comes in there, it materializes as a specific electrochemical pattern. So one of the unique aspects of our human brain that we're able to materialize information. And so I've just named 
three different vastly uh, uh, distant disciplines, some of which deny the very existence or the validity of the other, and I've used a single concept that opens up an understanding and a way of looking at things that we've never seen before. Uh, the listeners, when they're sitting at home listening to this, they're probably sitting in front of a computer. They're sitting in an office or their living room or wherever. They're sitting at a desk. They're sitting on a chair. They're wearing clothes. They have a computer in front of them. All of these things are materializations of information. And our human brain has the unique ability to take information and materialize it into the physical world. Now, what's crazy And oh, oh boy, is that ever a game changer. Oh, yeah, when it's looked at that way. What I argue, uh, Gene, is that we don't need any quantum leap in intelligence. We don't need any more information in a conventional sense, any more data. All we needed was the correct paradigm the correct way of looking at this information. And then suddenly everything begins to make sense. Um, you know, this is what's unique about a human being. It, 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 our creative faculty, our ability to materialize information. Now, here's where it gets Which, real. And, and before you go any further, I've got to jump on this because here, here's where... It, um, the religious people might get their hackles up and go, ah, how how is that even like remotely possible? But here's the thing. When we think of the concept of God who had a thought and used the thought to create physical, and now you're saying that human beings have the ability to create physical out of thought, here's the thing. It's very plainly stated at the very beginning of the Old Testament created in our image, meaning if there was a creative entity that had the ability to create with thought and turn thought into physical and they created something in their image, then whatever was created in their image would also have the ability to create using thought. Mm -hmm. It's right there. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. And I... Love well, that you're talking about it because we don't get to talk about it often on the show, and it's but it's right there. It's in black and white, so to speak. It's the, the, <laughs> the holographic universe idea, right? The the in the image of the piece of can do the well, it, but that's the same thing to me. It's kind of you know, okay, our brains have this unique ability to materialize information. Well, that's kind of to me sounds like a holographic projector. Yes, it sounds like, but uh, again, one in, of the in a, in a metaphorical is, sense. Yeah, one of the problems that we've had in this trying to make this unification and make some sense out of what we would consider traditional spiritual ideas or the paranormal or science or physics is that the best that we've come up with is things that are defined as looks like, sounds like, reminds me of. 
what my theory finally says is that this is what it is. It doesn't look like this. It doesn't sound like this. It doesn't remind us of this. This is what it is. So, you know, again, if we're going to look at it through these eyes, through this perspective, through this paradigm, and look at the Bible again with what you were just talking about, Gene, one of the things that Jesus said from time to time when he created his miracles, you know, which was basically a materialization of information. You know, he took yep. a man with a withered hand and materialized the whole, a whole hand out of information. The information came from somewhere. And when he did these things, he said, I did do this to show you that the kingdom of heaven has broken through in power. And that's pretty scary when you start thinking about it in the implication of what I'm talking about, because you see it in a whole new light. Uh, and the light that it really was being done in. Um, now, here's where it gets really, really interesting. Because what I claim is that all of this, and you can look at it holographically, that it manifests in all different uh, uh, quadrants of reality. You could look at it that way. The universe began in what we call the Big Bang. And that some people from time to time come and try to dispute it, but uh, we keep coming up with additional findings that seem to verify this model. And in the Big Bang, what physicists say is that the nucleus that started everything was what they call a singularity. Now, most people don't really know what a singularity means from a physics point of view. What that means is that there are no spatial and temporal variables. Um, everything in the physical universe is a multiplicity. It is a conglomeration of variables uh, based on the Einsteinian spatial field, length, width, depth, and time. These are all variables, and at the speed of light, they become a constant relative to one another. But a singularity would mean there are no differences at all. Everything is collapsed into a single coordinate, which means it cannot be physical. It has to lie beyond the physical or aside from the physical. It's also described as being infinitely dense and infinitely small. And within the confines of the physical universe, which is time, space, matter, and energy, there is no value of infinity. That is a, a not allowed value. It doesn't exist within the confines of the physical universe. And in fact, when equations are being worked by theoretical mathematicians, and they come upon a sum of infinity, they know either there's a mistake in their formula or they're missing something. This is one of the problems that they're still having with the Higgs boson because one of the models that was the predominant model of the Higgs gave the field the value of infinity. So they're still trying to work out what in the world's going on with that. Um, <clears throat> So anyway, now from the singularity, we have an unfolding, a, an emergence, an explosion, whatever you want to call it. 
And everything that was to become the physical universe, including the order and structure of it, as well as the substance, emerged from that non-physical singularity, that non-dimensional singularity. You know, this is sounding a lot like God the Creator. Uh, and uh, it can be interpreted that way or it could be looked at purely from a, an agnostic point of view uh, without any religious overtones. Uh, it could be looked at purely scientific. One of the greatest mysteries that we have facing physics today is where universal order came from. We don't know. It's illogical to assume that matter created its own order. Everywhere in the primordial cloud at once, all that primitive soup began to assemble itself into bosons and leptons and quarks and electrons and protons, neutrons, atoms, molecules, everywhere in the universe at the exact same time. There was no evolutionary trial and error where things began to assemble themselves and disassemble and break apart until it found a way that worked, and then that atom gave rise to all the other atoms. It happened everywhere at once, according to a predetermined order. So when we start looking at things, as I explained, like with the parapsychology, with paranormal phenomena, like, uh, um, you know, uh, disembodied voices, apparitions, actual materializations of distinct, coherent, meaningful, and orderly information. We're looking at the exact same image that brought the universe into being. So my conclusion was, that what causes paranormal phenomena is the exact same mechanism that brought the very universe into its existence. Now, here's why we haven't discovered it yet. And it's because when we take a look at reality, when we took, take a look at the physical universe, we are seeing it in a fully materialized form. We don't get to see the process that brought it into existence. So, for example, guys, I liken it to standing on the side of a superhighway and watching all these cars whiz by on this superhighway four lanes um, at 70, 75 miles an hour, whatever. What we are looking at is the fully realized or the fully materialized form of that transportation system. But in all, where we are standing, there is no way we could see the process that brought it into being. We can't see the mines that, that mine the iron and the copper and all the other alloys to go into it. We can't see the chemical plants that made all the synthetics. We can't see the assembly plant that built the car. We can't see the, the uh, workers working on it, the assembly line, the engineers, the blueprints. We can't even see the person who owns the car get into their car and drive it out of their driveway and get up to the on-ramp and get on the highway. We can't even see the contractor who made and laid the asphalt. This is how we normally view reality. But there are three areas of observation where we can see this process at work in real time. 
One of them is the human psyche, and this has not been fully explored in this paradigm I'm describing. We gave a, an example earlier about materialization of information, both in what we create around us and in psychic phenomena. Quantum physics is another area where we see this materialization occur in real time. And the third area is paranormal phenomena. So we could take this body of evidence and from it do experiments in real time in a human scale. You know, not not experiments on some distant galaxy, but something in this human scale, like in a living room or in a hotel room. And we can begin to crack what I call the crack the code of cosmic creation. So, we have this idea of materializing information. What that immediately gives us or leads us to is two different questions, two fundamental questions. Where does the information come from and how does it materialize? What's the actual mechanics of the materialization of it? And so this is what this theory describes. First of all, we have a source of information that I maintain is the same source of information from which all the universe emerged, but that it is a continuing process, that it didn't just happen once, and then the universe is here, you know, like a chicken that lays an egg, and that's it. But the umbilical cord has never been cut. The umbilical cord continues to feed the chicken egg. And so what we have is a continuous emergence of physical reality. Now, one of the simple examples that I give to show that this must be true is the expanding universe. Now, they showed us models back in school how the universe expands. They draw dots that represented planets or galaxies on a balloon, and then they blow the balloon up and say, this is what we see. And this is how we right. understand the universe is expanding. All right, Gene, you're familiar with that little experiment, right? Well, yeah, I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with the whole scientific expansion process um, oh. and, and, and theory and, and how, they, how they've explained it in complex terms and how they've explained it in the simplest terms. I'm just, because I find it fascinating. I'm fascinated by the whole. Yes, yes. But one of the things that they never explained to us in that experiment with the balloon is how come the dots get bigger with the surface of the balloon? Because in real space-time, the physical content of the universe isn't getting bigger. It's the space that it occupies that's growing. Now, the conventional view is strictly material. Well, the space just gets created as the, you know, uh, you know, as the universe expands. But wait, wait, wait. Einstein taught us that space is a substantive field. It's not a nothingness. So it has to be generated by something. Because Einstein maintained that everything in the universe was once unified in a single field. Therefore, it must all be physical. 
and therefore space, because it's expanding, must have something that it continuously materializes and generates the fabric of space-time as the universe expands. So the creational process is still going on. I don't accept the, the dream physics answer that, well, space just appears. It, it just uh, uh, generates. That's like that dark matter stuff, I'm telling you. Exactly, it is. I don't accept it because they've forgotten the implications of Einstein and what he said. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I think when talking with a number of physicists over the years, the vast majority of them either, either forgotten Einstein's work or they really don't understand it. They don't understand the full significance of what he wrote and what he envisioned and what its full implications are. So, if part of the creational process, now this is where it gets crazy, lovely, beautiful. If expansion of space-time is part of the creational process, and if paranormal phenomena is a real-time example of this creational process, then it should be accompanied by the expansion of space-time. That means that we have before a paranormal event emerges, we have a change in the conditions, in the physical state of the environment that is a result of the opening of a bubble of space-time. And that these... Which has been documented. Of... What's that? The, that's been documented. The physical changes in the atmosphere surrounding paranormal phenomena has been documented extensively. But we never knew what the mechanism was behind it. And I discovered it, that it is due to the expansion of space-time. In other words, it's almost like a miniature universe emerging on a very, very tiny scale. And let me walk through some of the aspects of this. I might mention that if you had a physicist that was intimately familiar with Einsteinian relativity and perhaps with a, uh, a dash of Calusa-Klein theory, and you, and you asked him what would happen if we had a bubble of space-time open up. Let's say we had the mouth of an Einstein-Rosen bridge open up inside of a house in the middle of a room with physical content, as Einstein called it, physical content, which let's say predominantly it would be air molecules. What would be the effects, Mr. Physicist or Mrs. Physicist, that you would see? And you would have to hold back your laughter as you watch that physicist describe all the kinds of effects that occur in a haunted house and has no idea that he's doing that. Because they would be all the same. They would be all the same. There'd be drop in air pressure. There'd be drop in temperature. Oh, I want to come crawl through the wall phone line and squeeze you and kiss you. Well, it's it's logical. It makes sense. Of course. It's logical. I mean... You're right, because if the bubble would expand like that, there would be less... Before the laws of equilibrium created a balance between the exterior and the interior of this edge of space-time, you would have a There'd deficit be a in the middle. 
Yep. Yes, you, there'd be a vacuum, yeah, and a vacuum causes a drop in temperature and drop in drop in pressure. Exactly. It's, you know, it makes perfect it, sense. It is a it is an urban legend that has become established in the paranormal field that spirits drain energy to physically manifest, which is what causes cold spots. It's a reflection of a complete ignorance of physics. Uh, and the actual laws that would govern that, we know that the entire energy output of the sun is not enough to convert to one ounce of matter. So you wouldn't see a cold spot at 20 to 30 degrees for a physical manifestation. You would be measuring how many square miles just drop to absolute zero to gather that much energy to create even the tiniest wisp of a cigarette smoky manifestation for a fraction of a second. It's just not there. But this model explains this. And also with that vacuum, another thing we would pick up, Gene, uh, you know, wind is a function of air molecules moving from an area of higher sure. pressure to adjacent lower pressure. So you would get mystery breezes where there's no doors and windows open. Of course. Now, change in air pressure. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep. You would so get a, a feel of a breeze go by. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Now, the outer edge of this bubble, it's interacting with the material content around it. And Einstein told us in expanding space-time uh, that the curvatures of space uh, crush and twist the physical content that occupies it. So if you take air molecules and you crush and twist them, you're going to excite the electrons in the atoms. And the electrons are going to jump up into their higher orbits around the nucleus and you're going to have an electromagnetic field measurable that emerges from thin air. And, of course, what goes up must come down. So when the electrons expend their energy, uh, they drop back down into their lower orbits, and two things that they can emit is heat, which would give us the, which would explain the paradox how we can measure cold spots and heat signatures at the same time at the site of paranormal events and why, uh, you know, uh, thermal cameras can pick up an image. But they also emit light, photons, which can give us a luminous phenomenon. So here we have a sphere, a bubble of space-time, and it would be a round sphere because we have yet to materialize any information into it. That's the other goodie. We're just talking about the secondary paranormal effects. So here we have a bubble of space-time jacketed in an electromagnetic field and emitting photons, and I maintain that that is the world's first scientifically accurate model of what paranormal investigators call a luminous spirit orb. Right. exactly what it is. And, of course, with the bending of space, you have a generation of an additional gravitational field above and beyond that of the Earth. The prediction being that at the emergence of a paranormal event, we should be able to measure an emergence of a gravitational field on three axes. That experiment has already been done. That prediction has come true. And so when That's people cool. report 
at the onset of a paranormal event that they get a feeling of heaviness, and almost everybody uses the exact same word, and we all know what that word means. They're saying something literally true because they're experiencing an increase in the gravitational field. On and on and on and on. Wow. You could get some serious uh, disorientation if there was an extended... uh, yeah. Phenomenon because you'd be experiencing gravity coming from multiple directions. And that Yeah, and not only that, dizzy. you imagine the space time and an emerging electromagnetic field bending your guts. No wonder people get sick and nauseous and, and all that. Their hair stands up on end. Yeah. And and, and interestingly enough, I, I want to point out that a lot of the symptoms of um of of that would also be easily confused with uh you you have people who say that they have this overwhelming fear of dread and that's that knotted up stomach and the nausea and the disorientation and the fear um so that could be easily confused yes and we know that at certain wavelengths that with the experiments have already been conducted numerous times, that electromagnetic fields, uh, uh, you know, uh, imposed on the brain can create those very kinds of psychological effects. So, here we have the information now. If Spock were here, he would say, fascinating. Fascinating. Fascinating, at least. Yes. And he'd figure out a way to build technology on it, which is, which is, I hope we get to that. Uh, but, all right, now, we have a source of information. Let's say, for example, let's use the word spirit and spiritual. I don't like to use those in this kind of description, but I'm going to use it for expediency's sake. And let's say we have okay. an, a coherent, organized, dynamic pattern of information which a life force signature would be very much like that. And let's say it wished to speak. And being non-physical, all it could do, all that pattern could do, is generate what we might call a vocalized information packet. And that packet drops down into that bubble. And as soon as it reaches the speed of light and below, it begins to materialize in that crucible, in that womb. Just like the bubble of space-time that expanded in the beginning of the universe, sucked in the information, and as it became luminal, it started materializing in the leptons and gluons and, and, and electrons and photons and atoms. It began to coagulate into physical reality. And so... Once that starts to materialize, the bubble is going to take the shape of the materialized information. Just like the bubble of space-time that surrounds all physical objects, including ourselves, has the exact same geometric shape that we do. We're all surrounded by bubbles of of space-time, of bent space. And they're so specific that they conform to every pore, to every molecule, to every hair to the clothes, all of that. So 
now the bubble of space-time begins to vibrate because it's a vocalized information. It materializes as a frequency in a wavelength, carrying information on it. And the surface of the bubble of space-time begins to vibrate. And at a low energy level, it would begin to give off, because remember, it's jacketed in the electromagnetic field. It will project a compression wave, an electromagnetic compression wave, carrying the information of that specific vibrational pattern. It goes to a recording microphone. It completely bypasses the recording diaphragm, the acoustic diaphragm, because it is not acoustic. It's electromagnetic. And it induces itself on the acoustic coils, the copper coils that are connected to the acoustic diaphragm that vibrate, and there's a magnet inside the coil, and it creates an electromagnetic compression wave that goes into the device and can be played back as sound. In this case, the electromagnetic compression wave already exists. It induces itself directly on the copper coils. It doesn't move them. It goes that's, into the device. That's why it's recorded and not heard. Bingo! You got it! You got it. That's wow. it. Wow. An EVP is. So one of the predictive experiments was that, number one, EVPs could be recorded in a vacuum. Number two, EVPs could be recorded with a dynamic microphone whose diaphragm has been surgically removed. Moreover, we could actually take a speaker and use the coils that are in the speaker and record EVPs from it as if it was a microphone. And all three of those experiments have been done repeatedly and have led to the results that are predicted by this model. Now, at a higher energy level, that vibrating surface of space-time actually agitates the air molecules and sends out an acoustic compression wave. That is picked up by the microphone acoustically and by our eardrums. And this is what we hear as a disembodied voice. It's non-local because there's no locally connected vocal cords. That's what di differentiates a normal voice from a paranormal voice. In a normal voice, vocal cords are, are connected locally to the air column. In a paranormal voice, there are no local uh, vocal cords connected to the air column. But what's happening in that instance is that the very surface of space-time is acting like a speaker. So space vibrates itself according to that emerging pattern and produces a compression wave in the air column that can be heard as a voice in our ears and on a microphone, and there's no vocal cords there. And and would be something which would require, it would seem, more energy, so you could almost use it like a a strength meter. Is, is it just electromagnetic, or has it become acoustic? Has it become physicalized? Well, it would be both. But it, it takes much less energy to project an, uh, an electromagnetic wave. That's what I'm saying. That would be a, the, the, the one that you could hear would be, so to speak, a stronger phenomenon. A strong, same phenomenon, yeah. but stronger. Right. Yes. 
Yeah, it wouldn't persist the same distance because acoustic waves degenerate faster than electromagnetic waves. They degrade as a general rule, but yes. And that would be, that would give you both effects. You would hear the EVP and the acoustical uh, uh, voice, although you wouldn't be able to distinguish it because the acoustic voice would be what would be, you know, dominant. That's what would be recorded. But if you had a disembodied voice and you were experimenting with a recorder where the diaphragm was cut out of it, the acoustic diaphragm, you would pick up the audible voice in your ear and the recorder would pick up the electromagnetic impression wave that accompanies it. So both would still record the same voice. I told you it was wow. going to get good. <laughs> There's enough like there's been nothing that even resembles this. I was able to make the conceptual breakthrough that opened all of this up. Um, and it took That's me almost awesome. 30 years to do it. Uh, and then I have a collaborative associate, David Roundtree, who has conducted many of the experiments. And what we have, what we had this year, earlier this year, was a breakthrough. Another breakthrough. And this is fantastic news because this can truly lead to a scientific proof of the paranormal for the first time. Now, for years, David had been observing heavy ionization in the air at the emergence of paranormal events. That was one of the symptoms that he saw, one of the secondary effects. And it always kind of puzzled him. Uh, David's one of these individuals that is very scientifically trained. He's held some prestigious jobs in various fields, especially in electrical engineering. And he was very creative with some of the experiments that he, you know, came up with. He said, let's test for this and that. Things that normal paranormal investigators wouldn't even imagine to test for. So he was seeing this excessive ionization with no mechanism by which that could occur. And one of the things that occurred to him was it was possibly caused by gamma bursts, gamma radiation. And so earlier this year, he conducted an experiment at the Shanley Hotel back in February to try to confirm this. And he, created, he produced equipment specifically to measure gamma radiation. And it happened to be an unusually active night. And what he found was not only a measurement of gamma radiation, but at one point, the radiation got so high that he had to get his investigators out of the room. Wow. And he has told me, he said he'd been in the, in the field for 35 years, many years before it became cool to be a paranormal investigator. And he said that he, he had known that there were an abnormal number of deaths and illnesses within the paranormal investigative community that he now concludes were a result of the damage that they suffered 
from being exposed to gamma radiation. Okay, so I'm curious something about gamma radiation. I don't remember where I heard it or, or where I have this idea from, but can gamma radiation, like uh, continued exposure to low levels of gamma radiation, can that also not cause changes in behavior? Oh, I bet it would. We've never run those experiments because the exposure to it would be destructive to human tissue. I, uh, I, I, I heard about that somewhere, and I can't, I can't remember where I read it, but there I wish I did. There might have been some anecdotal observations based on inadvertent exposure to gamma radiation. But it wouldn't have been anything that that, that any, uh, at least in modern times, uh, uh, any laboratory would have intentionally tried to set up an experiment like that because gamma radiation is destructive. Well, no, but I mean, it might be evident in in people who've been known to been exposed to it. That's what I'm wondering. I mean, because they have been experimenting with it for a long time, and I'm sure there have been accidents. Yeah, and I would say that you're probably right. There is some evidence or some data somewhere to, uh, you know, to indicate that. But here's the because cool it was thing. It, it would also explain the the. I mean, you have people who say that they have paranormal experiences in their house, and their reaction to it at first is very calm. They're cool. It's not interfering with their lives, but. After an extended period of time, it really interferes with their lives. They talk about how it causes rifts in, in, within the household and, and all this stuff. And I'm wondering if that would be due to the gamma exposure, the exposure to the gamma radiation. Yeah, it may be Just part of it. It may very well be. Um, but now here's the thing. Gamma radiation on Earth is only produced in a few instances. It's produced by radioactive material. It's produced inside of nuclear plants. It's produced in the upper atmosphere with, with lightning bolts. It's not produced in a hotel room. It's not produced right. in somebody's living room. There is no known mechanism that could produce gamma radiation inside of such a place. So consequently, it is the first piece of evidence that has been discovered where there is no possible normal explanation. No normal explanation is possible, uh, which is unlike all the other phenomena that can just be poo-pooed and you know, brushed mm-hmm. off as intersecting electromagnetic fields from various broadcasts or you know, uh, uh, right. you know, cracks in windows or, you know, people's imagination or mass hallucination or blah, 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 you know, on and on. Gamma radiation cannot be faked and it cannot be reproduced out of thin air. So here's what our, here's what David Roundtree's supposition is, is that what we're looking at in the emergence of these paranormal event horizons, so to speak, is the production of exotic matter. In other words, what we're seeing is the production of antiparticles, positrons, antiprotons. These kinds of particles are being generated, 
And when they collide with normal matter, they produce gamma bursts. Now, here's right. the beauty of it. In the beginning of the universe, at the Big Bang, there were two types of matter that were made. Normal matter and exotic matter. Right. So this is another piece of evidence that reinforces my model that what we're looking at is the actual creational process that brought the entire universe into being on a human scale in real time. And if that Goodness you gracious. Folks, yeah, you must be, if, if that doesn't floor you, then you've got to be in a coma or something. You know, you're having a nap you're in the corner. You're a mind bender. Well, it, it, it <laughs> you know, are you having a haunting? No, we're having uh, little bangs. No big bangs, just little bangs. <laughs> All yeah. over the house. What I call, what I call the big puff. <laughs> big puff. That is a big bang. <laughs> <laughs> because the beginnings of it unfolding out of the singularity were super luminal. So by the time the universe actually became physical, it was more like a big smoke bubble. So I call it the big puff. That's awesome. You are one fascinating individual, sir. That was such an an amazing conversation. It's... Certainly beats coming, somebody coming on, on the radio to report the latest gook and spook sighting, as I say. Hi, totally. Yeah, no. Absolutely. Slight difference. <laughs> well, see, there we go again with Tom. Of course, I think we could have Thomas on every show for several years and be at the same point at the end of the show. Of, gosh, it can't Probably. be the end of the show yet. We have so much more that we could cover. Uh, of course, you know, explain, unifying the, the the theories and and explaining the creation of the universe is it's not like we said much. <clears throat> well, not like he said much. <clears throat> so I I do want to thank you for spending your time and talent and treasure with us in the world. That's uh, but I can certainly understand how that that the implications of what you're saying are can be easily overlooked. You know, um, most people don't, they know what E equals MC squared. They know the equation. They haven't got a clue what it means still. So, you know, heaven forbid back when Einstein first came up with it, it was not coffee house conversation. That's true. Well, there you have it. Wow. <laughs> there you I've, I've already warned people at the uh, uh, when they're, they're, they come to see me speak at the Paradigm Symposium that they have to take the red pill before the presentation. Ha, ha, ha. It alleviates primal thumb-sucking, involuntary <laughs> fetal positions, or just plain falling out of your chair. <laughs> That's awesome. I know. Oh, my goodness. You're an adventure. <laughs> and so the book. Love it. Behind the Cosmic Veil. The website is just www.cosmicveil.com. 
com. And um, no, we don't mean the heavenly skiing place. We mean Cosmic Veil, V-E-I-L.com. <clears throat> and um, uh, go by there and check it out because uh, what what you've heard is, I'll say, as a science engineering grow-up kid, you know, and it's what I did, is uh, beyond mind-bending. It you want to talk about paradigm cha- uh, shifts and paradigm changes. Um, imagine if, you know, psychology and parapsychology and physics and imagine you put all that in one building on the, on the campus is what, what he's talking about doing. So pretty amazing stuff. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Thomas. Thanks so much for having me on. And uh, I would like to get back together soon to talk about religion. Awesome. I will hit you up with an email, my friend, and we'll get you back scheduled on. Okay. Absolutely. Perfect. It's not not something I get to talk about too much on these shows, so I would really – welcome the opportunity to discuss those things and what the implications Oh, I think it'd be a blast. Yeah, it'd be fun. I think it'd be great for the listeners, Absolutely. too, because I'm sure we lost a few people somewhere around Lepton. <laughs> <laughs> they, they leapt on? And they leapt off. And then they <laughs> leapt off? <laughs> yeah, Either instead that of saying leapt on. It was the home planet of the leprechauns. There's a lepton out there. <clears throat> Green sun. Green beer, anyone? All right, right. kids. So get by our website, too. Wrap her up. And at everydayconnection.me, sign up for our mailing list and uh, so that we can keep you informed as to all of the really cool people and really cool conversations that are coming your way because we got it. Cool people, cool conversations. We got it, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got, we got lots of that. We got that. So um, got that. I do hope that you will join us again next time. But until then. To our mother, to each other, to your leprons and yourselves, stay connected. Have a great now, everybody. Join Gene and Rick again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me and subscribe for news and updates. Stop by their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everydayconnection and join the conversation. You can also subscribe on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your Everyday Connection.
So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life. The only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.